Good morning. Yeah, it's good to be together. Listen, turn in um, a copy of God's Word, your Bible, your phone, whatever. Turn to the book of Acts. Uh, We're continuing in our sermon series going through Acts verse by verse. Uh, We've been doing that for, for quite some time. Now we're in Acts chapter 11. This morning we're looking at verses 19 through 30, and the sermon title this morning, and you're going to like it a lot, is You Are Such a Christian, all right? That's the sermon title, and you'll see why um, that is the sermon title uh, in just a moment. But listen, um, wow, this kind of feels like a basketball court up here. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. feel comfortable now. Um, Listen, uh, so I wanted to mention one thing real quick, and some of you have seen this on social media, but uh, there was a a pastor, author, uh, just really well-known Christian thinker who passed away uh, last week, Tim Keller, and I'm going to put a picture of his uh, of him up there and just just talk about that for a second, only because um, he really has had a great impact on our church. And you may not know that we try to put books in the lobby um, as a way, obviously not to make money, but just to like recommend uh, good people that that if you would read their books, it would help you grow in your walk with Christ. And I think the, the thing that I would want to tell you about, uh, you know, Tim Keller, would I put two books up there that I just think have really affected me, affected our church. Um, he's not perfect. Uh, he wasn't perfect. Um, neither is Barnabas, who we'll look at today. Neither is Paul. Uh, you know, these are people. These are people following Christ, but hopefully helping us follow Christ. And one thing I would say about him, so early, day, early days, Fellowship Raleigh, um, we hired a guy named Ben Pun, uh, Pastor Ben. He's now a church planner and senior pastor in L.A., but this is very early days. And uh, we met, Ben and I met, through the Gospel Coalition website. So there you go, eHarmony for pastors. Um, and uh, of course, Tim Keller helped start the Gospel Coalition, and Ben uh, was coming from Redeemer. And uh, he, one of his references uh, was Tim Keller's son, and uh, Ben loved Tim Keller. And so because of that, I grew to be a little bit annoyed by Tim Keller. <laughs> Nothing was gospel-centered enough for Ben. And um, anyways, he was here for a season, and, and the thing is, is that, that Ben had a great impact on our church in the short season that he was here in, in Really, a big part of that was was pushing me as an early church planter and pastor to to make sure that our ministry, that my teaching, that the focus that we have is really centered on grace and on the gospel and on Christ. And that was an influence that he gained uh, from Tim Keller. And I just think for you all and me, as people who live in Raleigh, a really larger city and a fast-growing city and a highly educated city and a very sort of technological city, and you may not feel like those adjectives describe you, but you do need to know that those adjectives describe the city where you are. And I think Tim Keller is very helpful as a pastor for so many years in New York with the books that he's written in terms of how to engage the Christian faith and engage the questions people are asking um, in the context of the city. And so I would really commend him to you to read his books. You know, the book Prodigal God is a book that he wrote on the prodigal son, which is a story in Luke 15. And, and I love this book because what he does so helpfully is 
you know, for years and years, the story, the prodigal son, just even that it's called that, the exclusive focus was on the one son who gets lost. And what this book is helpful is just showing us, no, it's really God. The, the story is about God. Just like all the Bible is really about God. And it's about God's prodigal love. And it's about two lost sons. And you can hopefully see how that really impacted even our church's mission statement, which is transforming religious and irreligious lost people through the gospel into passionate disciples of Jesus. And so just recognizing that there, there's, there are many forms of lostness. You can be at church and be lost, the older brother in the story in Luke 15. Or you can be off in the distant country, far from God, not interested in God, and be lost. So again, just great impact on me, on our church. Um, and so I just thought I'd mention it. I thought I'd mention that in honor uh, that person and, and, and hope and grieve together. Um, not everyone knows who Tim Keller is, so that's why I'm mentioning it. We have a person whose last name in our church is Keller, and they posted uh, about Tim Keller's passing this week, and all their friends were like, we're so sorry for your loss. Your, grand, your grandfather's just, you know, can be sorely missed, and people just don't know. Uh, so you, you might think everyone knows, Matt, why are you talking about this? Oh, I've heard too much already, but that's not really how it actually is. So, all right. Um, Part one this morning, you're such a Christian. Ready? All right. Acts 11, 19 through 30. So we're, we're here in, in the book of Acts, and, and the message of Jesus is spreading from Jerusalem, where Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, through the apostles, through miracles, through people going and sharing the gospel, through persecution. And now we're coming to the city called Antioch. And uh, Josephus says in his book called War, he says, and this is a secular scholar, he says that Antioch was third among the cities in the Roman Empire. It was, it was the third most important city in the world at that time. There's Rome, there's Alexandria, and there's Antioch. It was at this time of this, these events, half a million people, very large city for that time. A very diverse city, a very cosmopolitan city. And it's interesting, and you're about to see this because I'm going to read it, but in this city, the movement of Christian disciples, in this city, this is where Christians are first called Christians. You're going to see that. I want to read the passage to you uh, right now, but that's, that's why the title this morning is You're Such a Christian, all right? Because they were labeled Christians by the secular people in Antioch. They were saying, you're such a Christian. It was like intended to be an insult, but it ended up being a compliment. So let me just read Acts 11, 19 uh, through 30, and then um, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, pray, and then go through our points this morning. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad 
And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, normally I pray right here, but I'm going to say a couple things and then we'll pray. I just read to you this passage. You read it with me, the title again, that you're such a Christian because they're labeled Christians here in Antioch. Now, now this is an important passage. There's a lot of really, really big things that happen in this part of the book of Acts. And we really could spend our time this morning looking at this passage from a couple of different um, angles. Let me just suggest a few. One, we could spend the whole morning considering the astounding, the sacrificial, and the exemplary and the encouraging, keyword encouraging, ministry of Barnabas. We could spend our whole morning just looking at that. We could talk this morning about how Luke is actually telling you, listen, he is telling you that Christians were not officially called Christians until the multicultural church was born in Antioch. The homogeneous church in Jerusalem was not yet called Christian. That feels like you could either make too much of that or too little, doesn't it? We could talk this morning from this passage about the importance of not being alone. You see how Barnabas sees the task and goes and gets Saul to come help him. It's not good to be alone. You see how the the believers in Judea facing a great famine, they need help. And so the new believers in Antioch, they all commit to be generous and send relief. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone in In spiritual matters, a new Christian needing to grow, go get Saul, help him, get him to help teach. It's not good to go through a natural disaster like a famine all by yourself. Let's get some help. Let's partner together. We could talk about that. We could, oh, we could talk about predictive prophecy. We could spend a lot of time talking about whether that is for today or not. We see that happening here, and it's not in the Old Testament, right? It's in the New Testament. What do we do with that? We could talk about famine and poverty and the church's role in providing relief in times of natural disasters, because this passage talks about that. So we could talk about all those things, and truly, we're going to touch a bit on all of it. Um, That's why this is part one. But I believe that the correct focus for our time as we study this passage is, listen, the committedness 
and the right commitments of the Christians who were first called Christians. I I think that just, just leaps off the page as we look at these verses this morning. We cannot help but see how committed these Christians were. So committed. And we don't just see that they were committed to any old thing, right? We see what they were committed to. And that is a great encouragement. And that's what I want to walk through this morning. The committedness and the commitments of the people first called Christians. And I'm going to share with you over the next two weeks four commitments. One is committed to going. Another one is committed to grace. A third one is committed to growth. And then last, committed to generosity. So let me pray for our time as we look at the committedness and commitments of those who were first called Christians. Bow with me. Lord, we thank you this morning uh, for the Word of God. Lord, we thank you uh, that we are, are just Christians like those Christians at Antioch. Some of us perhaps even not yet Christians. We think of of Barnabas coming and encouraging them. We think of him uh, then going and getting Saul and coming back and then teaching them for a whole year. God, as, as your people, as Christians, we need to be taught. We need to learn from the Word. We need to be encouraged and challenged. We need to um, focus our lives on Christ such that people would label us Christian. So Lord, be with us this morning. Lord, we do thank You for faithful uh, leaders and faithful saints. And as we mentioned this morning, Tim Keller. But there are so many others whose, whose names we know or whose names we, we don't know. But we're thankful for those who are faithful, who set an example, who point us to You. Because God, we need to be pointed to You. We forget where you are, who you are, so often. And so may this morning also serve to point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Committedness and commitment. Committedness and commitment. I was working out one time. I don't say that as like, hey, I work out a lot. But I was working out one time <laughs> and uh, with the person from our church. And um, we finished up, and the person, I think, saw themselves as sort of a, a help in my life to hold me accountable. And so they were like, when are you going to work out next this week? And I was like, um, maybe Wednesday. And he's like, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? You have to commit. And I was like, that's true. Man, that was good for me. I needed to hear that. And then I was like, are you going to be at church on Sunday? Like, I got to see how the week plays out. I'm like, what? The second part's fake. But, um, you, know, you know, it's funny, though, a conversation like that, right? Because it's true. Like, being committed to something, like, that's a blessing. There's blessing in committedness. Anybody who's married wish they were still engaged? Like, oh, it's just so great being engaged. I just love that season of purgatory. Like, great, just would love to stay right there. No, there's blessing in committedness. There's blessing and committedness. And so, you know, we want to acknowledge how committed the Christians at Antioch were. But, but not just that. We want to see what they were committed to. 
what they were committed to. And so the first thing I want to look at is how they were committed to going. Committed to going. And when I say that, I really mean um, going as witnesses or as sort of missionaries for Jesus Christ, okay? Committed to going. I want to read you a couple of uh, cross-references first. Acts 1.8. This is the very beginning of Acts. Jesus says before he ascends, before he goes to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he says this to his apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Watch this. And you will be my witnesses. Not you might be. Not you could be. Just feel the committedness in how Jesus views it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now another example. Matthew 28, 19-20, a very famous uh, New Testament passage, the last words of Jesus called the Great Commission. He says, do you see it there? Go! Committed to going. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Watch this, verse 20 teaching them. Do you see Barnabas and Saul doing that when they commit to stay for a year, just pouring into and teaching these new converts that they might be disciples as well? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right. So now back into our passage, Acts 11, verse 19. It says this. It says, Now, those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, now pause, we've already studied this, but, but this is referring to something that happened in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. You can write a note there, you can turn back to it if you like, but there was a persecution in Jerusalem that caused the Christians to be scattered. It's kind of funny. The only thing that really made them go was suffering in persecution. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. And so they had to be committed to going. All right. It says that these people who were scattered, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, and that's really north on the coast of the Mediterranean, north of Jerusalem. You'll see a map in a second. And Cyprus, that's an island in the Mediterranean. And then Antioch, which is in Syria. And they were speaking the word, watch this, to no one except the Jews. And what do you think about verse 19? I think that Luke is putting the emphasis on who they only spoke to, don't you? I think so. I mean, he's like, they traveled so far, but then they spoke, what does it say? The word, well, way to go. They spoke the word. What does it say? To no one except Jews. Still only really sharing the good news of Christ with their own. Their own. Their own people. Now, it's interesting, right? Um, sometimes people think about uh, becoming like a full-time missionary. Like, I'm going to go be a missionary. 
And you'll hear it said sometimes, you know, hey, don't, don't go over there if you're not doing it here. You know what I'm saying? And I don't want to be like, I mean, pastors can get up here and be so convicting and just say things and stuff. I don't want to do that. But, but it is true. Like, if you look at these people, like, they were scattered from Jerusalem. They, weren't, they were already not going like Jesus told them to. Then persecution scattered them. And you might think, well, then, of course, that then they're going to start just sharing with everyone. And what we see here is, no, still, they didn't. Because when you go, you're not going to be a different person than you were at home. God's really got to change you. And so I just think that's like a helpful little push. It's a challenging thing. If you're not doing it at home, they don't need it overseas, right? Um, So, okay, verse 20. Enough conviction. Oh, my gosh. Okay, verse 20. But there were some of them... So there were some, there were some, there were some of them, men of Cyprus, that's the island, and Cyrene, that's a place in northern Africa, who on coming to Antioch, this big city in Syria, north, north, north of Jerusalem, they spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists meaning Greek people. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay. So there were some who spoke to people that were not their people. There were some who said, you know what? Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, go and make disciples of every nation. Let's bring the word of Jesus to the Hellenists, to these people whose language and culture is not Hebrew, it's Greek. Let's bring the gospel to them, to people different from us. It's interesting too. Let me ask you a question. Would you be offended if I said Lord Jesus instead of Jesus Christ? No, like what? Like, isn't that the same thing? Like, who cares? So, it's interesting though, because what Luke records here is that when they shared with the Hellenists, they were, do you see it? Preaching the Lord Jesus. And there's a, there's a shift here. The people that they were talking to, the Greco-Roman, the, the, the Roman citizens who were culturally Greek here in Antioch, they were accustomed to this world that they lived in where Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Master, Caesar is Lord. And the missionaries who are unnamed, we just know they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they brought the gospel of Jesus to the people of Antioch, They preached the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, they talked about Christ. They get labeled as Christians. We'll see that in a moment. But it's interesting how they contextualized. Christ is from the Old Testament. That just means this is the promised Messiah. Christ is a title from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And so it's not actually something that the Roman citizens in Antioch were sitting around scratching their heads saying, I wonder who the Christ is. No, they weren't thinking that. But they were familiar with the terminology of Lord. And so these unnamed missionaries, when they bring the message of the gospel to Antioch, they contextualize. We never change the message. We never water down Jesus. However, we should do the hard work of 
contextualizing our message for our audience and defining our terms as we go. We are to be a welcoming people who remove the barriers created by our own insider subcultures. There is no place for Christianese on the front lines of telling the world the good news of Jesus Christ. I think we sometimes don't realize how, how alienating we are in our inward focus and in the way that we talk to each other sometimes. And it's okay. There's a place and a time for fellowship, for us to not have to worry about defining everything and just to be comfortable. But we have to have a heart for welcoming people as the Lord has welcomed us. Examples, we say things like expositional preaching. It's like, huh? What? What is that? You should come to my church. We have expositional preaching. Yeah, there's like two people in Raleigh that are really fired up to have you invite them to that. Maybe say we teach the Bible carefully so that people will understand. Or verse by verse or line by line. We say things like, oh, you, you'll love my church. It's very reformed. Oh, okay. Like what? Like just got out of prison, reforming your ways? Like what do you mean? People that aren't churchy don't get that. Or we say things, and, and we talked about this on staff, and we've, you know, we've had fun with it, but when we, when we say like, let's give a hand clap, hand clap of praise, people are like, what is that? What does that mean? Like, I've only been to concerts where we just gave a round of applause. Like, is that a special Christian thing? Or, or we say things like, you know, um, in the Greek. In the Greek. In the Hebrew. Why not just instead not say that at all? You know? I was going to say, say in the original language, but it would probably be better if you just didn't say it. Um, and I'm guilty of that. But again, I just love the example here of they were preaching the Lord Jesus to people who only really knew the Lord Caesar. But what does it say in verse 21? That's what's key here. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay. So, so, so make sure you don't miss this. Who is the hand of the Lord upon? The hand of the Lord was upon the people who were crossing cultural boundaries and lines, the people who were sharing with the Hellenists. The hand of the Lord was on them. Have you ever prayed a prayer, Lord? I just pray you just would just put your hand on this person's life. Oh, Lord, please. Hedge of protection. Hand on their life, Lord. Here's the hand of the Lord. Here it is. Who, who, who has the hand of the Lord upon their life in the Bible, according to this passage? Those who are taking the name of Jesus to people far from him. Those who are crossing out of their comfort zone and crossing lines for Christ. The hand of the Lord is a rich phrase in the Bible. In Exodus 9, it tells us that the hand of the Lord was against Egypt when the plagues were brought down. It says the hand of the Lord was with Israel when they conquered the promised land. It says that the hand of the Lord in 1 Kings 18 was on Elijah when he was outrunning a chariot pulled by horses on his way to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord helps you run. 
the hand of the Lord was with these unnamed carriers of the gospel, these missionaries unnamed from Cyprus and Cyrene. Why? Luke tells us, because they were crossing lines with the gospel. And God blesses that. It's really the way of Christ. Think of Jesus. People often, we like to live within the lines that we draw for ourselves, that our church draws for us, that our culture draws for us, and and stay inside the lines. We're taught as children to not draw outside the lines. Jesus crossed lines all the time. And these unnamed missionaries were line crossers. And Jesus' hand was upon them. Jesus had to talk to the Samaritan woman at the well, crossing a line, a cultural line, a gender line. Jesus healed the centurion's son and raved about his faith, nationality line. Jesus touched the leper, crossing the lines of sanitation. Jesus ate at the tax collector's house, crossing socioeconomic lines hanging out with rich people. Jesus first appeared after His resurrection to women witnesses who were His friends, crossing gender lines. Jesus came, He says of Himself in Luke 19, to seek and save the lost. Not to just hang out with the found and share precious verses. Committed to going it's interesting, I found my new favorite website this past week. It is orbibs.stanford.edu. Okay, I'm going to show you a slide. This slide represents a very important thing to me. So let me just give you the subtitle of this website. The Stanford Geospatial Network Model of the Roman World. Okay, this is really cool. You guys are not getting excited enough. Um, what this allows you to do is put one place in and then put another place in, and it tells you exactly how the people would have gotten there in the Roman world, how much it would have cost, how long it would have taken, how they would have traveled by horse, walking by ship. I mean, I was just blown away because, and the reason I found this site is I was really thinking about all the traveling that's taking place in this passage that we're looking at. I was thinking, these people are going all over the place. So I looked into it, and you know, Jerusalem to Antioch, 360 miles, that's a 16-day journey. That's just in the beginning when the persecution happens. And then the missionaries who are unnamed, they come from Cyprus to Antioch, that's 160 miles, 2.3 days would require a boat. Then from Cyrene, which was northern Africa, to Antioch, that's 1,000 miles, 11 days would include walking and boat. Then Barnabas is sent to Jerusalem to inspect these new Christians in Antioch, that's 360 miles again, that's 16 days by foot. Then Antioch, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get Saul, then the two of them come back to Antioch, that's 250 miles and 10 days by foot and by perhaps boat. And then Barnabas and Saul go from Antioch to Jerusalem to bring the relief gift. Okay, you just, I love it, it's exciting. And you can go find all this stuff yourself, but 2,000, or I'm sorry, 115 days of travel. I mean, out of a year. And 
I was looking into like how many miles that is and how many steps a normal person walks in a mile. And it's 5.7 million steps for the gospel of Jesus Christ or for the building up of the Christians at Antioch. You know, a 2011 study found that the average adult takes between four and 18,000 steps per day, and they pointed out that 10,000 would be a good goal, good healthy goal. And a lot of us with our wrist technology and our apps like Strava on our phones, we track these things. We've adopted that into our goals, in some cases subconsciously. Feel kind of guilty you didn't get your steps in. These early Christians, listen, they knew deep in their heart of hearts that Jesus was a going Savior. That He came from heaven to earth. That He went to the cross for them. And because of this, they were from their hearts committed to being a going people. And they, and I know they do, they inspire you, they challenge you, and they convict you, they convict me to commit more, to be a going people with the name of Jesus to our neighbors, to our friends, to cities, to cross lines with Christ. So committedness and commitments. The first one, committed to going. The second one, and this is the last one for this morning, committed to grace. Committed to grace. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It's like the church in Jerusalem has, you know, they have like secret agents everywhere, just like ears all over the Roman world. If a Gentile becomes a Christian, they want to know about it so they can go inspect it. And, you know, so it says that the news came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem through some intelligence, and they sent, now here he is, Barnabas to Antioch. Now we've seen him already in Acts 4. His name is Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. He's from actually that island, Cyprus. He's known for generosity. He was the person who advocated for Saul with the apostles. Let's continue. Verse 23. When he, that's Barnabas, came. Now I want you to imagine right now that you are Barnabas, okay? When you came and saw the grace of God, were you glad? It says when he came and saw the grace of God, of God, he was glad. Grace. Think of grace for a moment. What is grace? Grace is a concept. It defined literally is unmerited favor. It means a gift from a higher to a lower. But in the Bible, it is not an abstract concept. In the Bible, this concept of grace is connected explicitly to God the Father giving gracing His Son for you and for me. His death on the cross that we might freely 
receive the gift of forgiveness, salvation, through the gift freely given of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that is grace. Ephesians tells us that we're not saved by good deeds, moral behavior, or works. We are saved by grace through faith. So when Barnabas gets to Antioch, in verse 23, it says, when he came, it says he saw the grace of God. I love it. He saw it. Have you ever touched hope? Smelled love, heard joy, seen grace. I love the way Luke is talking about this. He saw the grace of God. And he was glad. He was so glad. The word is literally joyful. Now remember, these were brand new Christians. And there were a lot of them. Very messy lives. Think of it. All they knew was the Lord Jesus. That's like about it. The year of teaching with Saul and Barnabas has not begun yet. These are people with very messy lives. Yet Barnabas can only see grace. And he feels joy. That's why he was nicknamed the Son of of encouragement. These people haven't had a chance to grow in holiness. They're still addicted. They're still profane in their language. They're still probably sexually promiscuous in their relationships. They're still obnoxious in their social ways. They're still corrupt in their practices. They only know Jesus, and yet that's enough for Barnabas to see the grace of God and be glad. Amazing. What does he say next? It says, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The NAS translates resolute heart. So Barnabas comes upon these new believers in Jesus and he sees grace and he's overjoyed and he says to them, here's my one piece of advice to you new followers of Christ. Remain faithful. I see grace. Stay right there. That's what he says. Stay right there. Don't move off of grace. Remain, literally it says, abide here in the Lord. Remain faithful. We often think of grace as the entry level, the ABCs to Christianity. Then we live out the rest of the alphabet as anxious, self-reliant, legalistic Christians. Barnabas saw grace and he said, stay right there. Stay right there. Remain faithful. Remain resolute of heart in grace and faithful to the Lord. So committedness and commitments. Now we'll see in verse 26 that the people of Antioch, they call the people who embody these commitments, they call them Christians. You're such a Christian. Going. Grace. 
And so I just encourage you this morning, be inspired. Yeah, be inspired. Embrace the blessing of committedness. Be committed to the right things. Be committed to grace. And if you are His, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you feel that your commitment is not what you would like it to be. Can I encourage you with 2 Timothy 2? If we are faithless, He remains faithful. And with Romans 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.